Okay, one matter of business is that our the church insurance company, the company that insures us for liability, has sent us a waiver form that has been distributed. We have some outside. If Cheryl will catch you, if everybody here already has one, but that for people to uh, sign, and uh, and then we'll just keep that on file. But all of this is just a way to make everyone recognize that you come at your own risk. See, you come at your own risk anyway. You risk hearing false doctrine. You risk hearing something r- considered radical and racist today. I'm just uh, kidding because of their bad definitions of, of racism. So we're always at risk everywhere we go, and that goes to divine institution number one, that we need to be, we are responsible for where we go and what we do and how we handle situations, and it's not anybody else's responsibility except our own. But we live in a litigious society, and we can't just ignore it and act like it's not there. So we have to take the proper... Uh, precautions as a congregation, just as an application of the word. That's what is known as wisdom, so that we can make sure that the congregation as a whole is uh, protected from frivolous lawsuits. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll make sure that we're spiritually prepared to study the word, that it is our responsibility as believers, to make sure that we continue to walk by the Holy Spirit, and that when we sin, we confess sin, so that we do not live our lives in carnality, being run and governed by the sin nature. So we always emphasize that, and we have a few moments of silent prayer before any Bible class, just to remind people of the importance of confession of sin. So after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your grace that we have forgiveness of sin. Forgiveness of sin at the cross positionally secures our salvation Forgiveness of sin when we confess so that we can continue to walk by the Holy Spirit. We're thankful that in this unique dispensation, we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who, when we are walking in fellowship, fills us with your word. 
Father, we're thankful that we can come together tonight. We're thankful for those who are here. We know that there are those in the congregation who are facing uh, challenges, some with jobs, some with health. And Father, today we learned that uh, Pat Broussard had suffered a stroke, uh, not a very serious one, apparently. But we pray for her and her recovery. We pray for Claude, her husband, and for Barbara, her daughter, as they take care of her and deal with the situation. We pray that you would strengthen them and that the Word of God would be the focal point of their thinking. And Father, we pray for us that we might not forget that as we walk with you, we often face tests and trials of our faith, giving us opportunities to trust you and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So tonight as we continue our study, learning not just how to vote, but how to think about reality, how to discern everything in the Christian life so that we can make wise decisions, we pray that you would open our eyes to the truth and give us a deeper and more accurate understanding of what we're studying. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, you might want to go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10, we are studying the fifth divine institution, which has to do with independent nation states. God established independent nation states, uh, and uh, also we could call it tribes. I think this is important because there's some language that is used. Some people have taught about nationalism, and that's not, if you understand the definition of the term, that's not a bad term. But we live in a world today where it, that term has been under such assault by those who wish to distort it that it's a red flag for people, so maybe we need to use a better word. There's no such word as nationalism in either the Hebrew or the Greek text. That is just an English word that, that has developed to emphasize the fact of the importance of having sovereign states, sovereign nations, sovereign tribes, that, and that this is established by God. The, um, if you listen to those on the left... Uh, it's really interesting because as I've been studying this, I mentioned him last week, an American Israeli by the name of Yorm Hazoni has written a book called The Virtue of Nationalism, which is quite good. He has a lot of YouTube videos, which I'd encourage you if you want to uh, think about these issues and understand them better, I encourage you to maybe watch some of those. In one of them, he is in a debate with Brett Stevens. Now, Brett Stevens is a past editor, uh, chief editor of the Jerusalem Post, I believe. Uh, he has written for the, uh, the Wall Street Journal. Also, now he's on the editorial board for the New York Times. And he's always been one who's pro-Israel. But he takes a totally different position, opposite position, opposing Hazoni's emphasis on the importance of independent nation states. And so a conservative student group at Princeton, I believe it was Princeton, had them come and debate. What I, I learned a lot from that debate. I think Hazoni did a great job presenting his case, but from the beginning, Brett Stevens ignored Hazoni's definition of nationalism. And this is a typical strategy from the left, is they're going to define it their way, and they don't care what you say or how you uh, accurately, historically, logically refute their definition, 
they're going to stick to it because their goal is really national, um, globalism. It is internationalism. And so whether you take a distorted extreme view like the alt-right or uh, some uber-nationalists like the Nazis or the fascists in Italy under Mussolini or the Russians in their assault on uh, all parts of Ukraine and taking uh, charge of Crimea. Um, if you, either one of those is opposed to internationalism. But Hazoni and the Bible have a different definition and his definition is consistent with the biblical definition, but it is not necessarily derived from the text of Scripture as I'm going to develop it, develop it tonight. But it's so important to define our terms, but it doesn't matter how you define the term. I'm just telling you there will be people who are internationalists and globalists that will hate and despise you because you do not believe in globalism or internationalism. And I know there are secondary tertiary issues that people bring up, but I think both, I think there was a statement by George W. Bush after 9-11 that absolutely irritated the left. He referred to the terrorists as evil doers. At that point, he is accepting the fact that there's absolute right and absolute wrong. He's rejecting the uh, moral relativism of postmodernism, and the left just went into a frothing frenzy over that because at their very core, they are committed uh, moral relativists. The same thing is true, I think, with President Trump. He is not a globalist or internationalist, and they just went absolutely berserk when he got elected. And that's one of the maybe two or three issues, and I think it may be the most important issue because they they are committed to building this international globalist uh, empire. Uh, that's what the left is all about. The leftists are all about. And so they, they really do hate those who don't agree with them because they know that's a foundational plank in their, in their thinking. So as Christians, we don't select what we believe based on politics, based on you know, the trends of the day. At least we should not. And I know there are Christians that, listen to, that may listen to this, and, and they've been influenced by the thinking of the world. And what we have to understand is in Romans 12, 2, the Apostle Paul said not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So we have to think objectively about this. This is a, a very uh, emotional issue for some people. It's a red flag issue for other people. Many, many companies in this in our country are committed to forms of globalism and internationalism and Christians work for those companies and they understand that and their job, their career, their future, everything seems to hang on this and if you say that there's something wrong or evil about globalism and internationalism that strikes at the very core of their careers, at their of, of income, of their future. So this is a, a very sensitive, sensitive subject for them. But it doesn't matter. We have to stick with what the Bible says or we are going to be uh, just completely off base as Christians. And you can't walk by the Spirit if you're rejecting fundamentals of the Bible. And this is a fundamental. It's foundational. 
as we've said all through this study, Psalm 11.3, if the foundations are destroyed, and there are foundations in a culture, in civilization, among the entire human race that are true for every country, every ethnic group, every culture, every subculture, if you ignore them, you will collapse, and if you don't, and if you uh, accept them, no matter what your other spiritual condition is, God is going to uh, bless you because he built this within the framework, the warp and the woof of civilization. So we've looked at the first three, individual responsibility, which has a lot to do with what we mean by independent nation states. You can't have a truly independent nation-state and understand it without a solid understanding of the importance of the individual and individual responsibility. Foundational to any civilization is marriage and the family. Those were all instituted by God before the fall and designed to promote productivity and advanced civilization. And it's after the flood, the worldwide flood of Noah, that God institutes first government and then independent nation states as a way to suppress and control uh, and to uh, deal with the rise of evil. And so those are those two, and we're looking at number five. And then the last one, which we'll get to either next week or the week after, is the importance of Israel for blessing all mankind. So we looked last time at Genesis chapter 10 specifically, dealing with this character Nimrod. A lot is not said about, I mean, there's not a lot said about Nimrod in this chapter, but enough to where we get a framework. And if you go to Jewish tradition, you go to Josephus, we did that last time, you see that Nimrod was an empire builder. And he is a a head, builds this empire centered in, what is later known as Babylon. It gets his name from this particular episode. And he's considered a mighty one on the earth. He is establishing a worldwide empire. He wants to be the one to bring peace and prosperity to the earth, but in against God, without God, in opposition uh, to God. And so he's mentioned in a few other passages in Scripture. His name may very well be derived from uh, from the same source as Marduk. The Hebrew word marad, meaning a rebel, it's the verb to rebel, is the root MRD in both the name of the Babylonian god Marduk, who's the chief deity for uh, Babel, and Nimrod, same consonantal grouping. And so th- there are those who who uh, relate to this uh, hymn to Marduk as a deified uh, emperor. And so Josephus says it well, that Nimrod persuaded them not to ascribe to God as if it were through his means, God's means, that they were happy, but to le- believe that it was their own courage which procured their happiness. What this tells us at, at the root of this uh, empire building is a view of God. It is religious in its very core. And so you have uh, the construction of the Tower of Babel, which means the gate of God. And it's a play on words because as we get into Genesis chapter 11 and the story of what happens to, to, uh, Bab- to Babel, 
uh, in the first nine verses of chapter 11, God is going to confuse the languages. And this is why it is called Babel, because the Lord confused their languages. That's in verse 9. But in, and that means confusion in Hebrew, but Bob El, El being a word for God, this is in, in Babylonian, it meant the gate of God. And so this is, they're, they're, they're taking that over that you go to the big temple to Nimrod in uh, Babylon, uh, even at the time that Daniel was there, uh, a thousand years or more later, uh, this temple is there, and that is the way to get to God. And I have a picture of the gate of the city here. This was reconstructed when uh, Saddam Hussein uh, was the dictator over Iraq. He was engaged in a in a, a project to rebuild Babylon. And so you see that these figures that are here are uh, one of one of them. If I can get to that screen, there we go. Uh, this one is is a dragon. And so we know that a dragon is one of the terms and names for for Satan. This is what we have in one of the uh, one of the things that's been uh, bricks that has been recovered from ancient Babylon. That uh, the dragon was the sacred animal of Marduk. So this sets up Babylon as the city of Satan, in contrast to Jerusalem, that's the city of God. And if you read through the Bible, you see that there's, there's this battle that goes on between the city of man, the city of Satan, and versus the city of God. And this isn't resolved until you get to the end times. You can read Revelation. When you get into the tribulation, one of the headquarters for the uh, evil ruler of the end times, known as the Antichrist or the prince who is to come, or the evil ruler, he is the one, and he has a headquarters that is set up in ancient Babylon. And I believe that's literal. That's not a code word for Rome. There are those who take it that way, but Babylon is never used anywhere else in Scripture as a code word, and there are no other geographical locations in Revelation that are code words for some other place. And so Babylon must mean Babylon, and it fits this, the, the whole stream of of the history that's laid out by the Bible. So what I did last time was I looked at at Nimrod to lay out the fact that the first thing that happens after the covenant with Noah, in the covenant with Noah, God tells them in Genesis uh, chapter 9, verse 1, that they are to scatter and to fill the earth. That is their uh, prime mandate, to scatter and to fill the earth. But Nimrod comes along in Genesis chapter 10, uh, verses 8 through 12, and he is uh, sets himself against the Lord in verse 9, and it, he begins a kingdom. And what he does in his kingdom is he begins to join these city-states, Babel, Erek, Akkad, and Kalna, in the land of Shinar. And so he's building an empire, and he wants to build this this ziggurat, this tower uh, uh, in Babylon that will reach the heavens. 
And there's various things that are said about this. Was this an attempt to uh, build a mountain where it's on a plain so that they would be high enough to avoid the flood if God was going to make war against them again? Uh, This is going to be their gateway to heaven. Uh, All of these uh, play a part. But what we see here is that internationalism or globalism, the idea of building an empire to to conquer the earth to bring in peace and prosperity because you're placing everybody under one ruler, under one law, that that is the way to to secure a utopic, peaceful, worldwide kingdom. And this becomes the type or the pattern for all of the future empires that we, we will see in the ancient world. You start off with, uh, with Babylon, uh, the original Babel, then you have the Egyptian Empire, you have the Hittite Empire, which centers up in uh, the area of modern Turkey, and then you have um, the Assyrian Empire, and then what is called the Neo-Babylonian or Chaldean Empire. That's at the time of, of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Nebuchadnezzar. And then that's going to be followed by the Medes and the Persians, leading to the Persian Empire, The Persian Empire is going to be defeated by the Greeks under Alexander the Great, and he spreads out a Greek kingdom. Then you have the rise of the Roman Empire. But over in the Middle East, there's a rise of a replacement to the Persians called the Parthian Empire. And all of these ancient empires, this is the stated purpose of the rulers, is to bring in peace and prosperity by unifying all of these countries. So it's just an ancient form of, of globalism and internationalism. Now, when we look at our central passage here in Genesis 11, we see that this is based on a chiasmus. As you look at the first section, in the first verse, it states that all of the earth had, a, had one language, typo there, had one language. So they're unified by language. There's not unification of of, of ethnicity wrongly referred to as race. In the Bible, as we'll see, there's only one race. In Acts 17, 26, Paul says God made us of one blood. Okay, there's only one race, the human race. And so there are not, there, there may be some cultural differences, there may be skin color differences, but that has nothing to do, all are equally descendants from Noah and his sons and their wives. So all the earth has one language. There's a lot of debate today over what, how are you going to define a language? One of the things we see in this episode is what establishes these uh, tribal diversities, what splits up the human race is that God splits up the language. It had one language but at the, in verse 1, but in verse 9, they have many languages. That's what divides up the population so that language is your first foremost devise, uh, uh, element that divides the people. Okay, Then uh, the second element in this, as we read through, I'll go back to the first verse and just read through this. Now the whole earth had one language, and one speech. So everybody understood everybody. Everybody could communicate with everybody else, and everybody could come together in unification. 
And then verse 2 says, And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. This is in the lower part of the area of, of uh, Ur, where Ur of the Chaldees is. This is the lower part of the plain between the Tigris and the Euphrates River. I'll have a map to put up here uh, a little bit long, later. This is the land of Shinar, and there... Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt uh, for, for mortar. So the fourth element is, let's make bricks. And then the, I mean, the third element. And then the fourth element is, uh, let me see, the fifth element is, let's make a name for ourselves. I'm looking at the wrong number, okay, so... The first element is they had one language. Second, it's there. It's all over the earth. Then we have uh, one to another. They speak to one another. And then uh, fourth, they say, come, let us make bricks. That's in verse 3 also. And then fifth, let us make a name for ourselves. And this is in verse 4. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. What that means is let, let's become powerful. Let's, let's make a reputation for ourselves. It's all about us against God. Now, I want you to recognize this is a contrast that is being set up by the writer of, of Genesis, by Moses, because when God makes a promise to Abraham, because of what happens at Babel, God is going to stop working through the human race as a whole and he's going to pick one particular tribal group through Abram that he is going to bless. And he says to Abram, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and what? And make your name great. So for Abram, God is the one making his name great. But for those who are gathered under Nimrod at Babel, they are going to make their name great. So they're driven by their own personal agenda. And so they're going to build a city and a tower. And then verse 5 is the center of the, key, uh, the chiasm. But the Lord came down to see the city and tower which the sons of men had built. Every time I read that, I kind of think of my mother saying, just wait till your father gets home. And then he shows up. You know, God is going to come down and you know you're really in trouble at that point. So then we start backing out of the other end of the chiasm. So again, there is a reference to the city and the tower. God came down, is at the center. He came to see the city and the tower uh, which the sons of man had built. This is all in the fifth verse. And then in the sixth verse we read, And the Lord said, Indeed the people are one, and they all have one language. Notice the emphasis on language here. That which is essential to their unity is a common language. So they, they come down to see, the, the uh, God says they have one, one people, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do now. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. God in his omniscience is saying anything they want to accomplish, they're going to be able to, and the subtext is, and it isn't going to be good. Because God in his omniscience knows, just like what happened before the flood, that 
evil is in the heart of man and that this will lead to corruption. And one of the most important things I think that we need to think about when we think about these things, I said this when we talked about the death penalty, is that there are a lot of people today, and you'll talk to people who think that how can God be fair and and you, you say he's instituted the death penalty, look at all the injustice that's occurred. Look at all the horrible things that have occurred in the name of justice and people who've lost their lives and been executed or lynched or whatever. Same thing with nations. You think about all of the wars, all of the border conflicts, all of the re- internal revolts, all of the people who lose their lives over Uh, battles that have fought to gain control over a city or over a nation. You think about one thing we'll reference later on, the Hundred Years' War. Hundred years, the British fought the French over in France, trying to extend their power over France, because, you know, most of the Normans came from that that area uh, with William the Conqueror and came over and defeated uh, the Saxons at the Battle of Hastings in 1066. And so you think of all these people who are killed in all these battles, in all these wars, all the way down through history. Do you think God was aware of that? In his omniscience, God was totally aware of that. Second point is God is absolutely just. So whatever decision God makes is the just decision. And so as God, as it were, to anthropomorphize this, is God looking down the corridors of time, God said, well, it's going to be a whole lot worse if I let everybody stick together in one unified international whole. They will make it a whole lot worse like it was before the flood. It's better to have everybody to delegate authority to execute justice in the death penalty, for example, and to and to confuse their language so that they have to divide up into smaller groups and can't unite. Uh, they will last longer in the long run. Fewer people will be killed. There will be, there will be less of a disaster and less evil. So God makes the right decision. Now, that's hard for a lot of people to understand because they can't think about the omniscience of God and the justice of God in that way. But we need to work at explaining that to people so that they can understand this isn't just some arbitrary decision that God makes. And then, oops, later on we say, look at all these horrible things that have happened. No, there was an an alternative, and that was to, to let it continue in terms of these international empires, and it would have been... Uh, 10,000, 100,000, a million times worse. So uh, we see that God looks, examines what they're doing, and then in verse uh, 7, in the uh, parallel to point D, he says, Come, let us, a reference to the triune God, let us go down and there confuse their language. So that's, he says, let's confuse their language and then they will not be able to understand one another's speech. That was the whole point, is we can't let them gather together. We can't let them gather together and try to do these things. It will make things horribly worse. And then the next point, which is uh, B prime, uh, he, the, 
at the beginning of verse 8, he said, So the Lord, the Lord scattered them abroad from there. They're scattered abroad. And this is parallel uh, to what we have back up in, in verse 2, where they were all coming uh, together and dwelling there in Shinar. So in verse 8, the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the earth, and they ceased building the city. So this divides people up. Now let's think about what happened. So you've got, for simple purposes, let's just say you've got 20,000 people. I think it was a lot more than that, maybe several hundred thousand. But God comes along, and God's omniscient. And at this stage, there's never been anything to divide the people in terms of what we now refer to as race. Everybody's the same. There's, there's no black people. There's no brown people, yellow people, white people. There's nothing that has yet been established to diversify the gene pool and to localize it into different groups. So God, being omniscient, knows who has different genes in their makeup, and so he causes group A, you're going to speak uh, Akkadian. Uh, Group B, you're going to speak uh, Proto-Hittite. Group C, you all have a certain genetic makeup. You're all going to be Egyptian, And, um, and and so on. And so he divides this up. Now, most of the people that are mentioned here as coming under the control of Nimrod come under the uh, descent from Ham. What's interesting is within history, there is more division of language, uh, a huge difference, between those who are descendants of Ham. You, You have Ham is the father of those who live in Africa, uh, the Philistines were Hamitic. Uh, later, they interbreed with those who are coming out of Greece, so they become a mix. You have uh, those who are in Asia, Asia, uh, Pacific Islanders, all of these different groups like that uh, are descendants from Ham. So you go to some place like Irian Jaya, and there are some of those very primitive people who every 20 or 30 years have to divide because they, they, uh, um, they just get too big to be supported in the small areas where they live. And within two generations, they're speaking a, a different language and they can't understand each other. So you have this rapid multiplication of languages and you think about how many different dialects and languages are used in China. And I've heard that there are 1,200 different languages uh, in India. And so, so what unites a nation isn't, you know, initially it's language, but then as you go forward, there are going to be other things that, that come into play, but it's clearly not race. This is the, this is the lie that you hear from the left and from also some of the radicals on the alt-right end, and we'll talk about that a little later. And so the last part is God has confused the language uh, of the whole earth. So this is all a religious enterprise. Internationalism is at its core a religious anti-God enterprise. It is trying to bring peace and prosperity to the earth, something that God promised that is um, that 
man cannot do. So, so they're anti-God. So when it comes down to it, a vote for anybody who is an internationalist, unless there are other issues. And today there's a lot of complexities. We have people who are globalists. George Herbert Walker Bush was a, you know, he's the one who talked about the New World Order. He was a globalist. So was uh, George uh, H. Bush, George W. Bush. W. Was, was a globalist also. But considering what the other side was offering, they were much, they were much better. So you always have to weigh when you're making decisions in an election. You look at all these categories and you say, okay, who's the closest? You know, one may be 10 miles away and the other is 20 miles away. Neither one of them are very close to where they need to be, but you, you, you only have two options. And in reality, and you have to pick the, the best one. Otherwise, you're supporting the rise and the, the, the increase of of humanism. George Smith was a noted 19th century a Victorian uh, archaeologist, wrote a book called The Historical Geography of the Holy Land, which is a classic. Every archaeologist goes to it. I've read through many parts of it. Uh, it's written typical 19th century, small print, a lot of detail. I remember it being in the... Um, in the uh, bookstore at Dallas Seminary when I was probably in my first year and Randy Price and I were together and this was on a sale table. Randy picked it up and grabbed it and shoved it in my chest and said, you need to buy that. I didn't open it for 20 years, but it is a classic book that, uh, you know, I got to a point where, yeah, I was very glad that I had this. And he discovered an inscription in Babylon that read, the building of the illustrious tower offended the gods. In a night they threw down what they had built. They scattered them abroad and made strange speech. So this is a somewhat of an authentication and validation of what had happened in, uh, in Babylon. So just to review what happens is they go and find a place to unify in China. Now here is a map of the ancient Near East, as it's called. Middle East is for more modern times. And, of course, the Ark landed somewhere in this area in Turkey. Uh, Ararat is up here, but there's debate about where exactly it landed. And so the sons of, uh, and their grandsons and great-grandsons of Noah began to spread out. And you have the, what is called the Table of Nations, We'll talk about what that act term actually means, nations, in chapter 10. It's used for each of the, uh, of the groups, that from uh, Japheth and then from Ham and then from Shem, you had all these people descended and they were divided into their nations. Well, we have to ask what a nation is, so we'll get there. But the area that we're talking about that is Shinar, is down here in the lower Euphrates, Tigris, River Valley. Uh, Kuwait's down in this area on the Persian Gulf, if you remember back to the first Gulf War. But this is a flat plain, and this is the area that they're, uh, they're, they're talking about. So we've already worked through most of this, and they understood what the issue was, that they want to build a tower to make a name for themselves, lest we be scattered abroad. 
God had ordered the, the Noah and his sons to multiply, fill and multiply, fill the earth, and they were against that. They're not going to fill the earth. They all want to stay in one particular area, according to Genesis uh, 9, 1. Uh, but the problem is they're united by language. Language is really the key here for understanding the, uh, understanding the issue. So we get down to 11.9. Therefore, its name is called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the earth. And from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. So the division into languages is directly related to the scattering of the people. And they are scattered and then they have to look around and find uh, someone uh, that can understand them, and so they would find someone that they uh, that they understood, and then they would get together, and then you soon, sooner or later, what you're developing is something uh, that's a basic tribe. They may not be related, or maybe God did choose certain families, which would make a lot of sense, and gave those who were somewhat close to one another in terms of family, they all got one language, and then they would all go off and so this is the beginning of, of tribes. And so you have a diversification. See, you have uh, people today say, we need diversification. So let's all think the same. Let's all unify together. And let's all join together and rule the world. And one world ruler will tell everybody what to think and what to say and what's okay. That's what happened in, in Russia. That's what's happened in every empire. This is the opposite of diversification. When God split everybody up by language, it creates a diversification. So you create the beginnings of uh, these tribes, and then the tribes will develop in different places over different periods of time. They will develop city-states, and then there's another progression that occurs in different stages over a lengthier period of time where city-states may join together and become nation-states in some sense. And then eventually you get into about the, the period of the Enlightenment, and that's when you have the development of what we now think of as nations. But it's a real problem for Americans and for Western Europeans now that if you read through the Bible and you see the word nation don't think of a modern nation. The Moabites are referred to as a nation, and they nothing like a modern nation. Uh, Edomites, others are referred to as nation, but they're not anything like a modern nation. So it's really better to understand at this early time period in the more primitive form that it's more tribal than it is anything else. And the failure to understand that is what... Um, what led to the problems in the Middle East when, after World War I, when the Middle East, the old Ottoman Empire, was divided up into very, and borders were set for various countries, it was just done somewhat randomly without any concern for the tribes that had lived in these areas for centuries and centuries. And you had all of these tribal, uh, tribal animosities and uh, alliances and all of these different things that were just upset by this artificially imposed border. Now, where did that come from? That came from an empirical mentality 
of the Allies, and especially the British, at the end of World War I. They're going to impose a peace on the world, and so we're going to tell you where your boundaries are, and they don't have any idea of what is going on in those other countries. I'll come back and talk about that maybe a little bit later. So you have Babel, the gate of God, and the idea of nations and the developing of these nations, and I will get to a point where I define it for you in a minute. Uh, Revelation 20, verse 8, talks about the fact that in the millennial kingdom uh, there will be nations, and they will, come, they will be deceived by Gog and Magog. In Revelation 21, 24, uh, we have the new heavens and new earth. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. So there will be kings, there will be rulers, there will be nations. Revelation 21, 26, uh, the honor of the nations is a term that is used. Revelation 22, uh, two, you have the, uh, the main street in uh, the New Jerusalem has a, a row of the tree, tree, trees of life, and that their leaves are for the well-being of the nations. So this is what's going on. So let's look at kind of a history related to Babylon, some things to think about. First of all, the construction of the ziggurat, that is the stepped tower like a pyramid that takes place there, is the first time in history. Nothing like this had ever been constructed before. It was a major engineering process. It took it took brilliant minds to pull all of this together and to do the planning, the architecture. It involved uh, geometry, trigonometry, a lot of math. If you've ever been to Egypt and looked at the pyramids, the pyramids are a copy of this this tower. Uh, pyramids even in in Mexico and in Central America are all copies. All of those derive from uh, uh, the copy of what was being built in, in Babylon. So they had to make bricks. They had to build kilns. They had to be able to uh, treat the bricks and to temper the bricks. They had to get the materials to make the bricks. So it's a huge construction project. Second thing is that Genesis tells us this is all motivated by an anti-God movement to unify the earth against God and that this is a direct violation of the covenant with Noah to fill the earth. Uh, third, I pointed out that this is primarily a rebellion within the descendants of Ham, but it included others. It included uh, other tribes, and so all of humanity uh, reaps the consequences and the language languages are scattered. Fourth thing we need to note is that Babel is the prototype and the foreshadowing of the human rebellion against God down through the ages. The prototype of all the nations, cities, empires that raise themselves in arrogance against God. But when arrogance is at the core of any movement, its self-destruction is assured because arrogance always brings disruption, chaos, and confusion eventually. So what we've seen is that Babylon now becomes the arch enemy of Jerusalem throughout all of Scripture. 
So Babylon is a, this chapter 11 is a turning point in Genesis. Up to this point, we see the curses of the fall, the flood, and now this is the third curse on man, uh, Babel. But God is going to turn cursing into blessing, and he is going to generate a new and distinct nation through Abram. And that is the next chapter. So Tower of Babel is the end of the first age, the age of the Gentiles. It is the end of the uh, third, I mean, yeah, the third dispensation, the dispensation of human government. And now we move into an era where there will be, uh, where there will be nations. And so this is very important to understand this because the first thing that we then see in Genesis chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 is God's use of this idea of nations. In Genesis 12:1, we read, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. So God recognizes that there are now tribal groups and cities that are distinctive, that are bounded by borders. You can't have somebody say to you, your country, if there aren't borders distinguishing your country from somebody else's country. Okay, so borders are implicit here. God has as recognizes the existence of nations. In verse 2, God promises Abram, I will make you a great nation. Uh, what exactly does um, Abraham understand from that? What exactly is a nation? And at this point, what we've learned from the Bible is the primary feature of a nation of a tribe is common language. There are going to be some other characteristics, but it's primarily based on on language. Now, the word that is translated nation here is, is really means something different from whatever comes into your mind. This is the Hebrew word goy, and goy is translated a lot of different ways. You have the same issue with the word ethnos in Greek, which is translated nation, but that's very superficial just to jump to that and think it's anything like what we're used to. Uh, the, uh, the word goy refers to, can be translated Gentiles as opposed to Jews. It can be translated in the sense of a heathen, that is somebody who is not saved, uh, it can have the idea of a nation, and it could be an empire uh, or a people. The American Standard Version and the Revised Standard Version differ uh, and agree in various instances. So in pl- some places, that one of them will translate it with one English word. The other one will use a different English word. But in Genesis 10.5, Goy appears twice. Uh, both of these translations translate nation in one instance, but in the second instance, the Revised Standard Version uses peoples. I, I'm quoting this from uh, Kittle's Theological Dictionary of the New Testament in his article on ethnos. This is, this is significant because I'm just pointing out the ambiguity in the term. So we can't say, look at this and say, well, these, the, all these people develop into nations and think we're talking about something like, like uh, 
the United States or England or Spain or or Russia or China. It, these are mostly at, at at really this early stage, nothing more than just basic families or or uh, tribal uh, tribal groups. When you get into the New Testament and look at uh, the Greek word ethnos, it's it's the word where we get our word ethnos. Uh, I mean ethnic, but the word that really related to a people and in terms of their political community is the word demos, from which we get our word democracy. So ethnos doesn't necessarily relate as a political entity of a nation as much. Uh, demos is only used uh, four or five times in the, old, in the Septuagint translating the Old Testament, but it's usually a translation of the word mishpachat, which really has the idea more of a of a clan or a, a smaller unit than a uh, a national state. So we have to be be careful with these these particular things. Now the next thing I want us to understand is that that as God is calling Abram out, He wants him to be distinct from others around him, even his own family. And so God tells him to get away from his family, but. He's not completely obedient. He takes Lot with him, who's his nephew. Later, there will be problems with Lot. Lot is his nephew, so he's not, he's not a descendant, straight-line descendant of Abram. But his, and his sons are Moab and Edom, and they're going to have their own, and they become their own countries, remember, on the, um, on the east side of the Dead Sea and further south down by um, uh, the Gulf of Aqaba. So what happens is you have Abram called, he goes to Haran, and something interesting happens in Haran. Abram took Sarai's wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people whom they had made. See, the translation in the New King James is acquired. Now you think they're slaves or servants. But they, they may be servants, but they are people they made. They are regenerated by Abram's witness during that time in Haran. So now he has himself, he has his wife, he has his nephew, and he has this huge entourage of people that will go down with him uh, down to the promised land. And then later when we have the invasion of the uh, five kings, from the east, that uh, um, our four kings, Amraphel, Arioch, uh, Keterle, Omer, and Tidal, four kings, when they invade, and notice each one of them is called a king. Well, we think of a king as the ruler of a country. These are rulers of city-states. The king of Babel, the king of Shinar, the king of Arioch, uh, I mean the king of uh, Elisar, the king of Elam, these are not nations in the sense that we're talking about, and they come against they come against uh, these five cities of the plain. And you have the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of uh, Adma, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Zoar. These are not nations. So, so we're dealing with city states here, is is the point that I am making. And then when this happened. Abram is going to have 318 trained men 
that are part of this group that he takes down from Haran. And these are his warriors that his security detailed that's going to go after uh, these kings and rescue, defeat them in battle and rescue them. Uh, so this is what I'm pointing out here is that there's Israel is the first melting pot nation. And that's important to understand that there's no such thing as somebody who is a pure descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Jews have assimilated people down through their entire heritage. Uh, we can think of a number of others that were assimilated when the Egyptian, I mean, when the Israelites came out of Egypt, uh, they took a lot of Egyptians with them. And so they became part of the new nation of, of Israel. Uh, you also had, uh, the, they were also joined by Moses' father-in-law Jethro and a number of Midianites. And so these are assimilated into Israel. And then later when you have the conquest, who, who do you have? You have Rahab, who's one of the uh, Canaanites living in, in Jericho. And she's, uh, and her family are uh, assimilated. But they, they, we get a lesson there of how a nation is to bring in new people through adoption. It's not based on ethnicity. It's not based on race. It's not based on uh, particular lineage. It is based on people who now have something in common. They want to unite around uh, a common law. They want to unite around a common uh, area of land. And so th they, they get become assimilated so that, like, like uh, Ruth said, your God is my God, your people are my people. She is not going to maintain her distinct Moabite identity once she joins with Israel. She is going to take on the customs and the language and the religion of her new country. She's not going to live distinct. That was typical in the United States when we had immigration, le good, legal, historic immigration. People came into the melting pot. You don't have... When you have today, is not a melting pot. You always hear people talk about, well, we need to have a melting pot. A melting pot is when you take different elements that can melt down and blend together. What we have today is more like oil and water. They do not mix, they do not blend, and the result is you're laying a foundation of great divisiveness. And that's exactly what has happened is over the last 50 years since the end of World War II, and especially with the rise of multiculturalism, we now are turning ourselves into a balkanized nation. And at the root of this is we did not assimilate people to the American dream. The American dream isn't just the idea that I can make something better of myself, but it is adopting the history, the heritage, the religion, the values of what made America a distinct nation. This is what made America a country where people wanted to come to. It gave them hope. It gave them meaning. It gave them a, a way to make their lives better and to have freedom and liberty to live their life as they wanted to live their life, not in an antinomian way, but in a responsible way to, to make something of themselves for their family, for their children, for their grandchildren. And so this only happens when people blend in together and they intermarry and they set up their own culture, but they become American. 
Uh, that was the pattern that we see in Israel. People joined, they intermarried, they became one with Israel. And so you have Rahab and you have Ruth and you have Bathsheba uh, and all in the line of Jesus. And these were, uh, it is thought that, that because uh, Bathsheba was married to Uriah the Hittite, many people believe that she was also uh, not Jewish, that she was a, a Hittite, but they all joined in uh, with Israel. And so they became part of that nation. And for there to be a nation, you have to have a people. Those are the descendants of Abram. And then you have to have a land. And then the third element is you have to have a law. So God gives them a land, and it's theirs. There are borders that are specified in Genesis chapter 15 for the land. And and not only that, but God is going to tell them that you don't go and take somebody else's land. This is the land I'm giving you. I'm taking it away from the Canaanites, and I'm giving it to you. And so God recognizes borders. This is what we see uh, later on in, in Deuteronomy chapter 2 through chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, he commands the people to leave the Edomites alone. Don't take their land. That's their land. They're an independent nation, an independent collection of people, and so you don't have any right to take their land or the land of the Moabites uh, because I have given that at the end of verse 5. God says, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. And so uh, Edomites, the Moabites, they have their land. Egypt has their land, but Israel is going to have their land. And this is what is referred to in Deuteronomy chapter 32, 8. When the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, this is one of two or three critical verses for establishing the importance of independent uh, nations, independent nation states. When the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, when he, that is God, separated the sons of Adam, he, God, set the boundaries of the peoples according to the numbers of the children of God. And so this is very important to recognize. God is the one who establishes borders and boundaries and the purpose is to distinguish one nation for, from another. The word that is translated border is the word uh, gevul, and it is used in four different ways to indicate uh, the boundary of north, south, east, and west on the compass, a boundary formed by a body of water so that a river separates between one country and another or a lake of something of that nature, it's a boundary of a land belonging to a nation or a subdivision. So you have boundaries for each of the 12 tribes. And those boundaries in each of the 12 tribes, if you go through the real estate section at the end of Joshua, defines which tribes, which families, which clans have the possession of different areas. So God clearly recognizes the right of ownership of land. He's the ultimate owner of the land. But the right of ownership of land and that one group of people doesn't have the right to take it away from another group of people. And he makes this very clear in the law that Israel doesn't have the right to go take land away from other, other countries. So God is against these empires who want to go out and conquer other land to establish peace and prosperity uh, through, throughout the world. 
And in fact, Job 24.2 says, the wicked displace boundary markers. So those who are not uh, for boundaries or protection of borders are defined by the Bible, the earliest book in the Bible, as, as wicked. The wicked displace boundary markers in Job 24.2. They steal a flock and provide pasture for it. So those who are against borders are really playing the role of a thief. And when you don't uh, defend your borders, it's not any different from not defending your house. I often want to say to those who want to do away with borders, well, why don't you start first? You open your front door, open your back door, turn off your alarm system, put all your guns away if you have any, and just let anybody come in and live in your house at any time whenever they want to. Well, we'll go down and tell all the homeless people down at, at I-10 and Blaylock or wherever and say, listen, here's the address. You go live in that house. The doors are open and just make yourself at home. Are, are you willing to do that? Well, nobody's willing to do that because they want their home to be safe and secure, and so they've established that boundary. It's called, you know, the piece of land that their house is on. So we recognize uh, all the boundaries. Psalm seventy-four seventeen says, You set all the boundaries of the earth, you made summer and winter. So now we come to a point where we're going to define a nation. Number one, a nation is not in the same sense in the ancient world as a modern nation. Biblically, it starts with language, so that's the commonality. But what happens over time is that not only do these tribal groups share a common language, they would share, for the most part, a common religion. And over as time developed, they had a common history, common heritage, and a common culture. And that's a big part of it. But there's a lot of groups that have those elements, but they're not a nation. Because a nation needs to be able to defend itself. A nation needs to not only say, this is our land and our country, but if somebody tries to take it away from them, they can defend it. This was one of the first things that had to happen once the United States gained its independence was, are we going to be able to defend ourselves? And some of the first uh, enemies to attack us were Muslims off of the coast of North Africa. They were called the Barbary Pirates, but it was the uh, Berber tribes in um, Algeria and Tripoli and Libya in that area that were uh, capturing Western European ships and were holding people for, for ransom and extorting money out of these other nations. And the United States said, no, we're not going to do it, and we're going to go to war with you. As a footnote to this, you'll find uh, some uh, ecumenicalists who want to make, make nice with the Muslims, and they'll say, see, look in the Library of Congress, Jeffer I mean, Thomas Jefferson had a Quran. He wanted to understand the other religions. Yes, he did. He wanted to understand Islam because they were the enemy, and he wanted to destroy them. That's why he had a Quran. He didn't have it because he was an ecumenicalist. He had it because they were the enemy. So in the ancient world, what you have is the development of tribes and then city-states, and uh, then eventually a few nations, something like Egypt, Babylon, Moab, Edom, but they were... Um, then you had some that tried to go further and conquer others. So much of the ancient world was tribal, then the development of city-states. That took time to some nations 
Egypt, Babylon. Later, uh, you had some others that became uh, unified. And they would, um, and then when they would move to the next stage as an empire, they would want to bring in peace and prosperity. The Roman Empire unified the world for peace and prosperity. It's a famous phrase, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. It lasted in the West uh, until around uh, the, the 5th century. Uh, Gibbon puts the end at 476. The Rhine is crossed by the barbarians coming in to sack Rome in 406. The sack of Rome occurred in 410. And if you think about that, that's 85 years after the Council of Nicaea. And then the Roman Empire splits in two, and the Eastern Empire continued until the fall of Constantinople in 1453. Now, a lot of people will go back to the word ethnos and the nation in, in Greece, but Greece doesn't unify as a nation. It's a unification is imposed first by the, the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great, and that forces these city-states to start making nice. But even to this day, I talked to a native Greek this morning. He, he said, even to this day, the, the unification of Greece is just skin deep because the people in these different areas just hold to these ancient differences. And the same thing is true in Italy. Italy did not unify until the mid-19th century. The same thing is true uh, to some degree in, in Spain, but they had a unified nation going back to uh, King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella when they defeated the Muslim hordes in, and cast them out in 1492, sent Columbus to sail the ocean blue, and then kicked all the Jews out, and that was the beginning of the end for Spain. Uh, France also had, um, had, had many different uh, ethnic groups. They had the Goths and the Visigoths, the Franks and the Gauls, the Bretons, the Normans, and it took years to pull that together. In fact, French does not become the official language for all uh, for all documents until the early part of the uh, 1500s. And uh, it's not l legally the national language until, none of you will guess this, 1993. Yeah. But actually the, the official language for legal documents and everything goes back to the early, uh, the early, early 1500s. So this takes a lot of time for these nations to pull together that we think of today. Germany was also, all of them were melting pots. So it's not one ethnic group. And this idea from the alt-right is that we need to have a white nation. There never has been a nation that was based solely on race. Uh, they, 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 there's this mix uh, in England. You had the Celts and the Gauls and the Scots and the Picts and the Angles and the Saxons and the Vikings and the Danes. And then you had a whole lot of others that came in. So it's a melting pot. The same thing in Germany. You had Saxe-Coburg. You had the Prussians. You had Rhineland. You had Bavaria. You had Württemberg, uh, Hesse. You remember the Hessians that were, um, that were mercenary troops that were hired by the British during the American War for Independence. You had Brandenburg, Saxon, Mecklenburg, all of these different duchies. And they're not brought together until, uh, uh, until it's finally accomplished in the mid-19th century uh, un under Bismarck. So you have all of these things happen, and you just get these what we call the big major nations coming in, in after the Enlightenment from about the 1600s 
uh, the 1600s on. And as a result of the abuse of nationalism, where you have these wars and border wars and everything else, and that's the abuse of nationalism, the rise of Hitler, the rise of Mussolini, that's the abuse of nationalism. When you listen to this debate with... Um, uh, between Hazoni and Brett Stevens, I wanted to just interrupt and say, so you're defining nationalism on the basis of its abuses. That's like defining marriage on the basis of, of a drunk, womanizing wife beater. That doesn't define what marriage is any more than, than the alt-right defines what nations is because they, they are taking an extreme position any more than the national, uh, the uber-nationalism or the extremes of the Nazis are, are Italians. And so uh, the left reacted after World War II, and they went on a rampage of, inter, of internationalism. Now back to our definition. Here's what Azoni says. He says... Many, uh, this is really related to the how you, we might define uh, divine institution number five, that is, as nation states or nations. Many different nations are able to chart their own course. So nations have to be treated like individual people. They're able to decide what they're going to do, how they're going to do it, where they're going to do it, and when they're going to do it. Nations are able to chart their own course independently without any interference from outside nations, they have their own traditions, their own laws, their own interests, culture, history. For 400 years, this has been the mainstay of the Anglo tradition. They got it from the Bible. He says that elsewhere, but that's where they got it. Uh, the, the European tradition, and that nations should be independent from one another. Now, when I have EU there, that was just an abbreviation in my notes for, for Europe. It's not the EU. The EU is another form of international empire building. A nation, as we've looked at this, is a collection of tribes that share a common language, a common religion, a common heritage and culture, and they're able to defend themselves militarily and I think also to establish their own coinage. They can make their own monies for, to, and guarantee that. The opposite is internationalism, which is a rebellion against God. In Acts 17.26, Paul said, He has made from one blood... Every nation. So we're all come out of, come from Adam. We're all equally in the image and likeness of God. And from one blood, every nation of man to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. That is the second critical passage for this topic in the Bible. And as I pointed out before last week, I've got the pictures here. Here's a statue outside the uh, entry to the uh, United Nations where you have a, a man beating a uh, sword into a plowshare. Uh, from Isaiah 2.4, he, that's talking about the Messiah, not the UN, shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares. Only the Messiah can bring peace and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That won't happen until the Messiah establishes his kingdom, ruling from the throne of David in Jerusalem. And then that verse, Isaiah 24, is on this wall, the steps here, you're entering into the entry to the United Nations building. They have uh, uh, adapted to themselves 
a messianic role. Uh, you have other descriptions in Isaiah about the wolf uh, dwelling with the lamb, the leopard lying down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion, and the fatling together, and the little child should lead them. This is the utopia of, of the millennial kingdom. But we're not going to bring that in today. This is in uh, Isaiah 11, uh, 6 through 9 uh, that you can look up. And so that brings us there to, I can't believe we did it, to the end of looking at the importance of nations, independent nations. We've defined nation as a group that comes together with a common language, a common heritage, a, a common goal. They are, it's not never defined by race. It never happens. They're, only those who come along with a purity of race would be, probably be the Japanese that would be it, okay? And so nationalism is recognizing that the world does best when each individual nation is allowed to determine their own destiny, chart their own, own course, that then you have the diversity of each nation uh, working out their own uh, the way of dress, their own uh, culture, their own norms, their own traditions, their own religion, and that is when things are, are done best, and it does not automatically lead to war. So this must be upheld, and this is what President Trump refers to as America first. It's not that everybody else is nothing. It is that we have to take care of our home first and make sure it's solid and strong and economically viable and what we see on the other side is let's build up every other nation. Let's continue to give money to the U.N. Let's continue to foster internationalism. Uh, there's an element of that that's sort of imposed upon every president, even though that wasn't their desire. But it, the, the contrast is very clear on this particular point. It may not be as clear on a couple of other points, but it's very clear on this point. So we'll come back next time and we'll look at the importance of Israel. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at this topic this evening, come to understand its significance, and that this is taught throughout the Bible, from Genesis to Deuteronomy to the Psalms uh, to Daniel, who lays out the, the future of these different empires, uh, from Daniel and then um, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, and on into Revelation, just showing that there will be nations and borders and kings even into eternity. Help us to understand this, and we pray that this lesson will be used to open people's eyes to what the Bible says, and we have to rule, make decisions, not on the basis of emotion, not on the basis of what is popular, but on basis of the eternal truth of your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.